couple of weeks ago, we finished looking at 1 Thessalonians. We've noticed that 1 and 2 Thessalonians are letters for end-time people. That means Christians living between Christ's first and second arrival on earth. So the words end-time don't mean we know how soon Jesus is going to come back. End time just means his return is the next big thing on God's agenda. When Christ comes back, this era will end and the new heaven and earth will begin. So as far as this current world goes, you and I live in the end time. In a sense then, every New Testament letter is written to end time people. But in his letters to the Thessalonians, Paul puts a special focus on this truth. Today we're going to look at the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. And this is a section about getting focused. That's what Paul does here. He zeroes in on the good things we can be most thankful for. And the goal that keeps us going. And also the grace that gets us there. If you haven't turned to 2 Thessalonians yet, you'll find it on page 1189. And I'll read all of chapter 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. This is God's word. In verses 1 and 2, you can see Paul gives his opening greeting to the Thessalonians. And then he moves straight away to point to the good things we can be most thankful for. Now, he's talking to a church fellowship here. So we might wonder what good things he's going to mention. 
may be large numbers of people attending the church. Maybe lots of money going through the church accounts. Maybe great facilities or lots of healings going on. Or maybe a top-notch preacher in the church. Or great musicians in the church. Those are all good things. And if we were making a list of good things, we might put those things on our list. But Paul's list here has none of them. Instead, he mentions growing faith, increasing love, and perseverance. Those are in verses 3 and 4. And Paul treats these as gifts from God. How do we know that? Because when he sees them in the Thessalonian church, he thanks God for what he sees. There may well have been lots of other good stuff going on in this church. But Paul treats these as the best of the good stuff. The first one he mentions is growing faith. He's talking about trust and reliance on God. Many of us can look back to a day when we put our trust in Jesus. For the first time, we recognized him as our Savior. But we should never think that's it when it comes to faith. That initial step of faith is like a stone landing in the middle of a pond. The ripples from it keep spreading out through our lives. The more we learn about God, the more we see him at work, the more our trust in him begins to grow. We begin to trust him with more and more of our lives. We turn to him more and more often, asking him for strength and wisdom. We become more willing to obey him, even when what he asks of us goes against our own inclinations. That's what it means to have a growing faith in God. And when we see that in ourselves and others, let's recognize it as a good thing we can be thankful for. Paul mentions another good thing that he, said he believes is significant. Increasing love. And this is specifically love for one another. For the brothers and sisters in Christ God has placed us with. I think it's unlikely any of us would have chosen this particular blend for our church family. We probably wouldn't have chosen a mix of such different personalities and backgrounds and temperaments. Just take a moment and look around. Some of us are so laid back that we struggle to get going in the morning. Others of us struggle to switch off long enough to go to bed for a few hours. Some of us are impetuous. That's our nature. Everything has to be done yesterday. And others of us are so ponderous and tentative, it's amazing we ever take the plunge to do anything. We could go on and on with our differences. Differences in musical taste, including some of us with no musical taste at all. And God has planted us all together. He's called us to love and serve one another. 
It's a wonderful thing to see a body of very diverse believers increasing in their love for one another. Because who cares really whether a church has a nice building to meet in? Isn't it much more important that the church meeting in the building is growing in their love for one another? Who cares really how smart we look whenever we come together? Isn't it much more important that beneath the brushed up exterior, our hearts are increasingly being bound together? That we're increasingly willing to bear one another's burdens and go the extra mile for one another. I've seen plenty of impressive looking church buildings full of impressive looking people. You probably have too. Churches can be impressively traditional or they can be impressively trendy. But don't we want to be part of a church that's impressive for another reason? Because of the love its members have for one another. Don't we want to be part of a church where the bonds of love are stronger this year than they were last year? And don't we want to play our part in making that a reality? As we think about faith and love, these words increasing and growing are important. No church is an already finished product. If a church ever thinks it is the finished product, it will soon begin to die. I remember hearing a preacher who had gone to be a pastor at a church that used to have a big international reputation. But when this pastor accepted a call there, the church had dwindled by that time. It was a shadow of what it used to be. And yet one of the members said to the new pastor, coming here is going to make your reputation. Isn't that sad? That's a church thinking it's arrived when it's almost dead. members were living in the past. And the pastor said, I didn't like to tell them, but I was worried the place was going to close. We only continue to grow as we continue to seek new levels of our obedience to God. Just yesterday I was reading a book about running, and I came across the statement, this statement that says, you only ever grow if you're outside your comfort zone. Now the point was, in that context, if you just keep running the same distance at the same speed, you'll never get any better. At some point, you have to force yourself to go farther and faster. If that's true for running, it's equally true for our growth as Christians and our growth as a church body. We grow in faith and love as we step out into new acts of faith and love. Notice what Paul is doing here. He's actually doing two things at once. He's encouraging these believers on to more growth. And at the same time, he's reminding them not to become proud whenever they do grow. 
because it's a gift from God. It's God who has enabled them to obey his word. Whenever their natural inclination was to do something different. It's God who's enabled them to love that brother or sister who is so, so different from them. Paul mentions a third good thing that we can be particularly thankful for when we see it. Perseverance. Look in verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul says he's holding the Thessalonians up as a model for other churches to follow. That's another way of saying to them, don't give up. Your perseverance is an inspiration to others. If we think about it, it's amazing, really, that some of us are here this afternoon. Over the course of your Christian lives, some of you have suffered knocks And you suffered dark experiences that, humanly speaking, should have caused you to give up. But you're here, persevering. You're still following Jesus. You might feel wounded, and you might feel scarred. You might feel you're just limping along spiritually. But the fact that you're still here is something to be thankful for. Never underestimate how amazing it is that any of us keeps the faith. We live in a world that opposes God and scorns Christ. A world filled with spiritual pitfalls. To live in the midst of all that and still keep the faith 20, 30 years after coming to Christ, that in itself is an amazing thing. It's amazing when we see it in others too. Sometimes it's worth stopping to look back. To remember all we've been through in the last year or the last five or ten years. When we do look back, it is no small thing to be able to say, I have kept the faith. And actually it's Christ who has kept us. Many of you will have read that little poem called Footprints. It's about a Christian looking back over their life. And noticing as they look back that in the darkest times there was only one set of footprints. And so the poet asks God, where were you in those dark times of my life? Where did you leave me by myself? And the answer comes back from God, I didn't leave you in those times. I was carrying you. Perseverance is an amazing gift from God. And it's also something that you and I are called to. Yes, God does carry us, and he also calls us to keep going. And in verses 5 to 10, Paul describes the goal that keeps us going. In verse 5 he says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. 
And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Paul begins verse 5 by saying all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. So what does he mean? What evidence is he talking about? Well, surely it's what he's just mentioned in verses 3 and 4. Their growing faith, their increasing love for one another, and their perseverance through persecutions and trials. All that is evidence that what God is going to do is right. So what is he going to do? Paul says he will give relief to these believers. And he will give them a place in his new heaven and earth. That's the meaning here of the kingdom of God. And at the same time, God will bring judgment on those who are troubling the believers. God is just. He will not overlook evil forever. He will eventually bring punishment. He won't act like evil doesn't matter. And he will bring vindication for his faithful people. God is just. A day will come when our faith and love and perseverance are rewarded. Now they may be rewarded here and now as well. But they will definitely be rewarded in the future. And Paul goes on to describe that future day. We saw that he spoke about it in 1 Thessalonians, and he says more about it here, picking up in the middle of verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Before we get to anything else about this day, notice what God's judgment is going to be based on on that day. In verse 8, It's going to be based on how each of us has responded to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. None of us are going to be saved by our own efforts or our own worthiness. We're saved by trusting in the good news that Jesus died in the place of sinners like us. What Alan was praying about earlier. We're saved by accepting that gracious gift from God. The gift of a substitute who paid for our sin. And that trust in Jesus will then produce obedience. If we live a life that is characterized by disobedience, then we haven't come to trust in Jesus at all. That's why Paul has referred to faith, love, and perseverance. He's called those things evidence. They're evidence that we belong to Jesus. 
They don't earn us our place with Jesus, but they're evidence that we belong to him. And so we will actually be judged by God on the lives we have lived. If we have lived obedient lives, the glory isn't going to be ours. All of it will belong to Jesus. But we will still be judged on the lives we have lived. That's what Paul says. So day by day, the judgment day is the goal that keeps us going as Christians. However hard faith, love, and perseverance feel to us today, on that day, we will be so, so glad we have persevered. We'll be so glad we trusted God above our own wisdom and our own desires. We'll be so glad we kept on loving our brothers and sisters instead of giving up and withdrawing to try to be comfortable and safe all by ourselves. On that day, we will be so glad we turned away from the ways of this world. Because on that day, there will be everlasting destruction for those who lived by their own wisdom and lived as if they were Lord of their own lives. But, verse 10 says, on that day, Jesus will be glorified in his holy people. Now, the sense of that could be he will be glorified in the presence of his holy people. Or it could be he will be glorified by his holy people. Either way, whichever the sense is, the day of Christ's return will be an incredible day for those who persevere. Paul says, on that day, we will marvel at the worthiness of our Savior. When we meet him on that day, we'll wonder how we were ever tempted by lesser things. We'll wonder how we were ever tempted to give up. We will be face to face with Christ our Savior. We will see him as he is and we will say, you are worthy. There is no greater thing than hearing your voice and seeing your face. That is the goal that keeps us going. And so we have to keep turning our attention to that day. I could try and give you 101 practical tips for living the Christian life. But there is nothing more practical than lifting up our eyes to the day that is to come. Don Carson has said, the Christian life can be lived faithfully only if it is lived in light of the end. So if we want to be practical, let's think about Christ's return. Let's sing about his return and talk about it. And then we will live in the light of his return. Thinking about Christ's return is a great motivator for us. And it's also true that when he returns, as we stand with him, and as we look back over our lives, we'll see all of it was by God's grace. 
All the times that we trusted him enough to obey him. All the times we showed love when we felt like staying comfortable and pulling back. All the times we kept going when we wanted to give up. All of it was God's grace giving us what we needed. So even as Paul wants to motivate these believers, and he does want to do that, even as he points them to the goal of standing unashamed in Jesus' presence, he closes this section by reminding them of the grace that gets us there. The grace that gets us to our goal. Verse 12, verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, Paul spoke about Jesus being glorified in his people when he returns. But here in verse 12, he prays that Jesus will begin to be glorified in them now, today. He prays that what will be true in the future will begin to be true now. That's only going to happen through God's power. All of us are like cars with empty petrol tanks. We don't even have the fuel to get started. Never mind get to our destination. And the fuel we need as Christians is God's grace. It's his grace that gets us started in the Christian life. His grace keeps us going every day, mile after mile. And it's his grace that will get us to our destination. So let's each of us pursue a growing faith. Let's challenge ourselves to love one another in new, deeper ways. Let's persevere through our difficulties. And as we do, let's ask God to fuel us with his grace. Let's thank him for the countless ways he's already poured out his grace on us, year after year. Let's ask him to fuel more faith and love and perseverance. And let's make sure we keep one eye fixed on the day that is to come. The day we'll see our Savior and we'll realize that it's all been worth it. Every little act of obedience and love. Every single day of perseverance. It's all worth it. And one day we will marvel that we ever felt like giving up. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing, All I once held dear. And then rejoicing in hope we wait for our King.